0: Chapters 1 and 2 of A Study of Army Camp Life During American Revolution by Mary Hazel Snuff. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1 Housing Conditions The war was on, the Lexington and Concord fray was over, Paul Revere had made his memorable ride, and the young patriots, with enthusiasm at white heat, were swarming from village and countryside, leaving their work and homes where they were going they did not know they were going to fight with little thought of where they were to live or what they were to eat and wear there was a continental congress but it had little authority and the fact was that very few members of that mushroom growth army even felt that they were fighting for a confederation for in their minds they were for the various states and it was to the various states they looked for support and it was to those states that the honors were to go it was not until the day before the battle of bunker hill that congress had appointed a commander-in-chief and it was almost a month later when washington took command in boston there was an army of sixteen thousand men mostly from the new england states strengthened by about three thousand from the more southern states during the next month it was more nearly a mob than an army there was no directing force, no one to superintend the building of barracks, no one to distribute food or to take charge of the supplies the provincial congress of massachusetts on hearing of washington's appointment ordered on june twenty sixth seventeen seventy five the presidents of the college house in cambridge excepting one room reserved for the president for his own use to be taken cleared prepared and furnished for the reception of general washington and general lee it seems as though the general only occupied that house for a short time and then moved to what was called the craig house for on july eighth seventeen seventy five the committee of safety directed that the house of john vassel a refugee loyalist should be put in condition for the reception of the commander-in-chief and later that his welfare should be looked after by providing him with a steward a housekeeper and such articles of furniture as he might ask for such were the headquarters of the first camp of the revolution but the story of the private's quarters is quite a different thing the troops were not quartered at one place they were scattered about the surrounding territory some at roxbury some at winter hill others at prospect hill and sewell's farm and at various small towns along the coast some of them were living in houses and churches, others were occupying barns, and still others were constructing their own places of shelter using sailcloth, logs, stones, mud, sod, rails, or anything else which would lend itself to the purpose. A good description of this motley host is given us by Reverend William Emerson of Concord. The sight is very diverting to walk among the camps they are as different in their form as the owners are in their dress and every tent is a portraiture of the temper and taste of the persons who encamp in it some are made of boards some of sailcloth again others are made of stone and turf brick or brush some are thrown up in a hurry others curiously wrought with doors and windows done with wreaths and waths in the manner of a basket washington wrote from cambridge to congress on july tenth seventeen seventy five about a month after taking command and said we labor under great disadvantages for want of tents for though they have been helped out by a collection of now useless sails from the seaport towns the number is yet far short of our necessities when tents were used for shelter at cambridge or at other places it was very seldom that anything more than mother earth served as floors and sometimes that was so wet and miry that the soldiers during the rainy season were forced to raise the ground with rushes barks and flags in the dry and at other times the tents were taken down during the day for the ground to dry and then put up again at night it would be difficult to get anywhere more frank reactions to housing conditions than those which were given by dr waldo in a poem written while in camp describing the general conditions but particularly the tents and huts the part quoted below describes a stormy day and the hardships endured when the army was encamped in tents though huts in winter shelter give yet the thin tents in which we live through a long summer's hard campaign are slender coverts from the rain and oft no friendly barn is nigh or friendlier house to keep us dry move tents and baggage to some height and on wet cloths wet blankets lie till welcome sunshine makes them dry others despising storm and rain still in the flat and vale remain their sleep in water muck and mire or drizzling stand before a fire composed of stately piles of wood yet oft extinguished with the flood as the weather grew colder and the men were still in tents it was the practice to build chimneys on the tents or rather in front of the tents they were built on the outside and concealed the entrance which served the double purpose of keeping out the wind and also keeping in as much heat as possible the tents were supposed to house about six men and no more than fourteen tents were allowed to a company of about seventy-two the tent was the most common mode of housing it was used whenever it was possible to get material except when the army went into winter quarters then the log huts were built the tents were usually formed in two ranks in regular lines and often the seasons advanced so rapidly that the snow would be four feet deep around each tent it even being february before the huts were finished in some instances the furnishings of the tents were very meagre one person even remarking that they were greatly favoured in having a supply of straw for beds the straw was placed on the ground and five or six soldiers would crowd together on it hoping to keep warm sometimes each had a blanket and sometimes there was one blanket for three or four the sentry was instructed to keep the fire burning in the chimney outside which added a little to the comfort when the army went into winter quarters the soldiers were a little more comfortable morristown and valley forge were the two representative winter quarters the location of these permanent camps was usually chosen because of the ease with which building materials could be obtained or because there was easy access to food supplies as orders came to go into winter camp the men were divided into companies of twelve each group was to build its own hut and lucky was the group which happened to get the most carpenters for general washington offered a prize of twelve dollars to the group in each regiment which finished its hut first and did the best work while the men were busy cutting the logs and bringing them in the superintendent appointed from the field officers marked out the location of the huts they were usually in two or three lines with regular streets and avenues between them altogether forming a compact little village the space in front of the huts was cleared and used for a parade ground by the various regiments whenever it was possible the huts were built on an elevation the health of the army being the object considered the only tools the soldier had to work with were his axe and saw he had no nails and no iron of any sort just the trunks of trees to cut into the desired lengths and a little mud and straw each hut was fourteen by sixteen feet with log sides six and one-half feet high the logs were notched on the ends and fitted together in a dovetailing fashion the spaces between the logs being made airtight with clay and straw the roof was a single sharp slope that would shed the snow and rain easily made of timbers and covered with hewn slabs and straw there might be boards for the floor but often there was not even a board to use for that purpose and just dirt served instead each hut inhabited by privates had one window and one door the officers quarters usually had two windows the windows and doors were formed by sawing out a portion of the logs the proper size and putting the part sawed out on wooden hinges or sometimes in the case of windows the whole was covered with oiled paper to let in light the door was in one end and at the opposite end a chimney was built built in a manner similar to the hut itself except that it was made of the smaller timbers and that both the inner and outer sides were covered with a clay plaster to protect the wood from the fire the huts were in one room usually except the officers and theirs were divided into two apartments with a kitchen in the rear each such hut was occupied by three or four under officers the generals had either their own private hut or else lived in a private house near the camp in the same poem as mentioned above written by dr waldo is a description of the building and furnishing of a hut which warrants repeating my humble hut demands a right to have its matter birth and site described first of ponderous logs whose bulk disdains the winds or fogs the sides and ends are fitly raised and by dovetail each corner braced athwart the roof young saplings lie which fire and smoke has now made dry next straw wraps o'er the tender pail. next earth then splints or lay the whole although it leaks when showers are o'er it did not leak two hours before two chimneys placed at opposite angles keep smoke from causing oaths and wrangles our floors of sturdy timbers made cleaned from the oak and level laid those cracks where zephyrs oft would play are tightly closed with plastic clay three windows placed all in sight through oiled paper give us light one door on wooden hinges hung, lets in the friend or sickly throng, by wedge and beetle-splitting force the oaken planks are made, though coarse, by which is formed a strong partition that keeps us in a snug condition, divides the kitchen from the hall, though both are equal and both are small, yet there the cook prepares the board, here serves it up as to a lord.' the above description no doubt applies in general to any of the winter quarters often the camp was better situated for obtaining the necessary supplies and too after the soldiers had built one such town of huts the next would be better because of their experience the camp at morristown was better than the one at valley forge the quarters were large and huts were built to be used for social affairs such as dances and lodge meetings when the army was only stationed at a place for a short time as for instance when they were encamped near the enemy planning an attack and did not care to build the more permanent quarters which took more time to complete and when living in tents was not practicable they built what the french called baroques, which could be thrown up in a day or two these temporary quarters consisted of a wall of stone heaped up the spaces between filled with mud and a few planks formed the roof a chimney was built at one end and the only opening was a small door at the side of the chimney when the army was on the march the soldiers carried their tents with them if it was possible but a great many circumstances arose which made that impossible then they had a hut of brush or sod or even just sky to cover and protect them at other times they slept in barns or churches or wherever they could find a place as might be expected the furnishings of the huts were of a very meagre sort there were beds of straw usually on the floor or else raised from the floor to get away from the dampness each man was supposed to have with him his own blanket and cooking utensils but it often happened that there was but a kettle or two for the whole company since the actual necessities were so meagre there surely were no unnecessary articles there were none of those things which would tend to make the camp quarters the least bit like home one man describes the difficulty of finding a place to write and ends by saying that the railing in a nearby church was the best place the only light they had was furnished by candles which were a part of every man's rations and the tallow from the cattle killed for camp use was made into candles the men crouched together in these huts and the poor ventilation coupled with the fact that the only means of heating was an open fireplace which sent about as much smoke into the room as it did out through the chimney produced a condition which was almost unbearable from this study it would seem as if there were at least three classes of barracks the tents used when practicable the huts for winter quarters the baroques for temporary housing and if one wanted to mention a fourth it would be just any place wherever a soldier might lie down when the housing situation is looked at from one angle the view is of the worst possible but when on the other hand one realizes that each time the troops went into camp THE WHOLE PROCESS HAD TO BE GONE THROUGH WITH, FROM THE CUTTING OF THE LOGS TO THE MOVING INTO THE huts, AND, BESIDE THAT, THEY HAD NO TOOLS, THE WHOLE THING SEEMS WONDERFUL. CHAPTER Two: FOOD AND CLOTHING IF THE PROBLEM OF HOUSING WAS A SERIOUS ONE, AND ONE WHICH CAUSED A GREAT AMOUNT OF SUFFERING, THE QUESTION OF FOOD WAS EVEN MORE SERIOUS. THE THEORY OF GETTING THE FOOD FOR THE SOLDIERS WAS ALL VERY SIMPLE, BUT NOT SO SIMPLE IN PRACTICE according to theory the various colonies were apportioned the amount they were to supply and were to deliver their portion to the camp which might be designated by the commander-in-chief the lack of authority of congress which played havoc so many times with the smooth running of affairs also played havoc in the commissary department the apportionment plan was carried out to some extent but of course was not to be depended upon for often the colonies got the supplies to camp but more often they did not the amount to be supplied was divided up among the inhabitants of the states in the case of meat some giving one hundred and fifty pounds and others one hundred and eighty pounds according to their ability the other supplies were divided up in the same way when a given community was ready to send their supply, some of the farmers would take the job of driving the cattle to the camp, receiving about a dollar a day and expenses while they were traveling. A Frenchman who traveled in America during the revolutionary period told of his experience when he tried to get a room in an inn which was filled with farmers on their way to camp with a herd of cattle. In that particular group there were 13 men and 250 cattle july 19 1775 joseph trumbull was made commissary-general of stores and provisions by the continental congress november four of the same year the following resolution was made in congress in regard to the rations of the private soldier resolved that a ration consist of the following kind and quantity of provisions viz one pound of beef or three-quarter pound pork or one pound salt fish per day one pound bread or flour per day three pints of peas or beans per week or vegetables equivalent at one dollar per bushel for peas or beans one pint of milk per man per day or at the rate of one seventy-second of a dollar a half pint of rice or one pint of indian meal per man per week one quart of spruce beer or cider per man per day or nine gallons of molasses per company of one hundred men per week three pound candles to one hundred men per week for guards twenty four pounds of soft or eight pounds of hard soap for one hundred men per week The rations mentioned in orderly books or journals were the same as the above, except that butter was added in some cases, and a pint of rum was allowed on the day a man was on fatigue duty or on special occasion, but in the large the rations given at the beginning of the war by Congress were followed whenever there were supplies enough to admit of any definite plan being followed. The officers received rations according to their rank this would have ended the story of the revolutionary soldier's food if the theory had been practicable but as it was not there is a different story to tell the conditions on the march to quebec with arnold were almost unendurable the march was only started when the soldiers were put on short rations receiving three-fourths of a pound of meat and bread instead of a whole pound and as they proceeded the conditions only grew worse until when they were not yet nearing their destination the last of the flour was divided there were just seven pints for each man that amount was to last seven days thus each man had a pint a day to live on and that had to be divided into a gill for breakfast half a pint for dinner and the remaining gill for supper it was mixed with clear water with no salt and laid on the coals to heat a little and then was nibbled as the soldiers marched on or else it was boiled like starch and eaten in that fashion it happened sometimes that some soldiers had the good fortune to kill a partridge much to his joy for that meant soup could be made the condition only grew worse instead of better and all the food was gone the next move was to kill the dogs which were in camp even the legs and claws were boiled for soup when the situation had become so acute that the soldiers had given up their moose-skin moccasins to boil in an attempt to get a little nourishment a moose was killed a halt was called and soup was made for the hungry soldiers of the entire animal hoofs horns and all if we follow the division of the army which was sent against the indians in sullivan's expedition in seventeen seventy nine the conditions will be found to be somewhat different for that march was made during the summer and fall rather than fall and winter as the march to quebec had been and besides the western campaign was into a country which abounded in beans peas corn cucumbers pumpkins squashes and watermelons the soldiers were short on rations and out of bread but it was not felt so keenly because of the substitutes they could get the main object of the expedition was to devastate the indians land and one duty was to destroy or take all the food which came in their way when the soldiers came to a field of corn their first duty was to feast on it and then destroy all they could not use or carry away with them if the corn was in a condition for roasting they did that or made succotash if it was too hard for roasting they converted some old tin kettles found in the indian villages into large graters by punching holes in the bottom then one of the military duties of the soldiers was to grate the corn into a coarse meal which was mixed with boiled pumpkins or squash and kneaded into cakes and baked on the coals and even that coarse food was relished by the men when fatigued after a long march this rather amusing entry yet terrible if true is found in one diary of the expedition july seventh i eat part of a fried rattlesnake to-day which would have tasted very well had it not been snake the conditions in the camp were somewhat different than those on the march for in camp what the rations were depended on the amount of supplies if they were plentiful full rations could be drawn by each soldier but when they were scarce each soldier had to take less the time and place of drawing supplies seemed to vary with circumstances and no definite plan was followed it is a mistake to think that the soldier of the american revolution was always suffering for the want of food the picture drawn for us most often is that of the distressing conditions there was a brighter side although it is true that the soldiers suffered many times when the camps were situated in or near an agricultural community the farmers swarmed to camp with their produce charging exorbitant prices but if the soldier had any money he was usually willing to buy in the course of eight days the caterer of a single mess purchased three barrels of cider seven bushels of chestnuts four of apples at twelve shillings a bushel and a wild turkey which weighed over seventeen pounds in winter when there was no produce to be brought in and no way of securing provisions the story was not so bright the conditions at valley forge were quite well known how the rations were cut down until it was fire-cakes and water for breakfast and water and fire-cakes for dinner or how the soldiers ate every kind of horse-feed but hay and often they were without meat for eight or ten days and longer without vegetables supplies were gathered from every conceivable source sometimes cows were part of the supply company taken along for the purpose of supplying milk one man writes in his diary his appreciation of a cow which supplied them milk on the march with sullivan's expedition the method used at that time for cooking seemed very simple and inefficient now huge bake ovens were built in the camp and whenever there was flour to use bakers baked the bread for the camp the quality of the bread furnished in that way was certainly not beyond reproach for often it was sour and unwholesome there were huts built for kitchens one for each company and there the soldiers took turns cooking for their company or else each soldier cooked his own food over an open fire at times the fuel became so scarce that the fences around the camp were torn down and burned and after that the food had to be eaten raw because of the lack of fuel if there was material to be used for fuel and other supplies some distance from the camp it was no uncommon sight to see soldiers yoked together acting the part of horses in order to get the supplies to camp Today, this question of food for the revolutionary soldier in the light of present-day events looks rather inefficient and unscientific When there was plenty, the soldiers feasted, when food was scarce, they fasted, but it must be remembered that there was no dependable supply, no directing force, and no distributing agency, and besides those hindrances, there were no ways of preserving food as there are today. A naked or half-clothed army did not make a very imposing-looking force, even if they did have a place to live and something to eat they had to have something to wear if they were to meet the enemy on the field steuben wrote the description of the dress is most easily given the men were literally naked some of them in the fullest extent of the word the officers who had coats had them of every color and make i saw officers at a grand parade at valley forge mounting guard in a sort of dressing-gown made of an old blanket or woolen bed cover this description no doubt was appropriate for part of the army part of the time but not for all the army all the time the troops as they were assembled at boston did present a peculiar picture each person wearing the costume best suited to his individual notion of a suitable uniform with a tendency toward frill ruffles and feathers each thinking that the gorgeousness added to the dignity and effectiveness of the whole some were in citizen's clothes some in the hunting-shirt of the backwoodsman and some even in the blanket of the indian for it was the notion of some that riflemen should ape the manners of the savage washington took the matter into consideration and wrote congress i find the army in general and the troops raised in massachusetts in particular very deficient in necessary clothing upon inquiry there appears no probability of obtaining any supplies in this quarter and the best consideration of this matter i am able to form i am of the opinion that a number of hunting shirts not less than ten thousand would in a great degree remove this difficulty in the cheapest and quickest manner i know nothing in a speculative view more trivial yet if put in practice would have a happier tendency to unite the men and abolish those provincial distractions which lead to jealousy and dissatisfaction he suggested the hunting shirt because it was cheap and besides it is a dress justly supposed to carry no small terror to the enemy who think every such person a complete marksman it was decided that the hunting shirt should be used and also that the continental government should supply the clothing and then ten per cent of each man's wages should be withheld each month the quartermaster-general had charge of the clothing supply and at regular intervals he was supposed to distribute clothing to the soldier but the supply varied to such an extent that no regular plan could be followed the following was considered an ordinary man's outfit for a year two linen hunting shirts two pairs of overalls a leathern or woolen waistcoat with sleeves a pair of breeches a hat or leathern cap two shirts two pair of hose, two pair of shoes the whole was to amount to about twenty dollars the soldier was considered in full uniform when he appeared on parade with a clean shirt leggings or stockings hair combed shirt collar buttoned with stock hunting shirt well put on hat since the material for the hunting shirts was difficult to get the officers as well as the men were to dye their shirts in a uniform manner the different ranks of a soldier were shown by the hunting shirt a captain's was short and fringed the privates short and plain the sergeant's was to have a small white cuff and be plain and the drummer's was to have a dark cuff both officers and soldiers were to have hats cut round and bound with black the brims of the hats were to be two inches deep and cocked on one side with a button and a loop and a cockade which was to be worn on the left side there was also a distinction made by the wearing of a certain colored cockade in the hat the field officers were red or pink the captain yellow or buff and the subaltern green the material for the soldiers clothing was supplied by the various colonies the following resolution is typical of numerous ones passed by the different colonies that a quantity of home-made cloth or other if that can't be obtained as far as may be of a brown or cloth colour sufficient for three thousand coats and the same number of waistcoats and as many blankets as can be obtained in the colony three thousand felt hats cloth of check flannel or some linen if that can't be obtained sufficient for six thousand shirts and also six thousand pairs of shoes or as in massachusetts a committee was appointed to collect four thousand pairs of stockings the material after being collected was made up by regimental tailors the commanding officer was to make a report as to the number of tailors employed in the regiment and also whether there were not more tailors in the regiment than were employed in making clothing the women at home aided very materially in the clothing problem by their spinning knitting and collecting of linen when persons called on mrs washington whether she was at home or in camp they usually found her knitting and she had sixteen spinning-wheels running at one time other women all over the country followed her example instances almost without number are mentioned in diaries and journals of the nakedness of the army some without shoes with only pieces of blankets wrapped around their feet thousands without blankets others with their shirts and strings and added to all that the paymaster without a dollar and the quartermaster in almost the same situation even the soldiers had to suffer from the want of clothing yet they were able to see the funny side of the situation the story is told in one diary of a party that was given by an officer for which invitations were extended to all the only restriction being that no one with a whole pair of breeches could be admitted End of chapters 1 and 2